0: You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is Episode 131. Hello Metamorphs! Welcome to another episode of The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, the creator and head author of the Metamorph City story universe. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorphcity.com. This is the show where I share my fiction with you, and keep you up to date on my life and my writing. So, let's get started with this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Stave 3 of A Lightbringer Carol. If you haven't already listened to Staves 1 and 2, go back to episode 129 and get caught up before continuing on with this week's chapter. In our last episode, Jana Starson met the spirit of Hin Elric an ancient Lightbringer priestess. Using the holy sword a lemicil as a gateway, Corena took Janus back to a winter solstice long ago, when she had a bitter falling out with the star child, Mirai Hindana. After Mirai caused the fall of the gods, the Lightbringers held a council to decide what it meant and how their religion would change as a result. Karenna was the leader of the council, and she was desperate to hold the Lothanasi together because she feared the loss of their culture if their religion crumbled. She succeeded, but it cost her her relationship with Mirai, who saw it as a personal betrayal when the Lightbringers rejected the visions she had received of Eli and Joshua. Karenna told Janus that her inflexibility, her obsession with her duty to the order above all else, had cost her the friendship of a woman she had loved like a daughter. The vision then shifted to Janus' own past. He and Corena watched a twelve-year-old Janus in a sparring match with his much bigger and stronger father, Asariel. Father did not hold back, dealing out both verbal and physical abuse in his attempt to toughen his boy up to survive the dangers of combat. They were interrupted by the arrival of Janus' mother, Lisbeth, who is outraged and horrified at the way Asariel was treating their son. She took the boy Janus away, telling Asariel that he would never be alone with Janus again. The rest would be settled in the divorce court. As Janus reflects on this event, he realizes that father had gotten badly out of balance. He thought he was doing the right thing, that he was preparing Janus for the dangers he would face, but his obsession had led him into cruelty and abuse, and cost him his relationship with his wife and son. Balancing the responsibilities of love and duty was not always easy, as the examples of both Corinna and Asariel have shown him. Janus wonders how his operations officer, Candace, manages to do it, but Corinna tells him that another will have to help him answer this question. The next spirit will arrive when the clock again tolls one, and the third will come on the stroke of midnight. Janus doesn't understand how the magic of the solstice can linger for so long, But before he can ask, Corinna disappears, leaving him alone back in his quarters. A Lightbringer Carol A Holiday Tale of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Stave 3 The Ghost of Solstice Present Janus checked the clock on his bedside table. Twelve-oh-seven. Impossible, he muttered. We weren't gone for more than an hour. He turned on the lamp and checked the wall socket. The clock was still plugged in. He went over to the window and drew back the curtains. A heavy fog filled the air outside, obscuring everything more than a couple of meters away, but it was certainly closer to midnight than midday. 12.07 12.07 AM, then, and not PM. Somehow, nearly 24 hours had passed during his journey with Karenna. And where exactly had she taken him? Into the dreamlands? Into some sidelong dimension that ran beside the past, where they could witness events but not participate in them? Or was it some part of the realms beyond, of which the Lightbringers knew nothing? Wherever it was, time apparently flowed differently there. That wasn't unheard of. There were confirmed reports of people entering the Dreamlands, becoming lost, and emerging hundreds of years later. Losing a day was a minor inconvenience by comparison, though he was sure that his agents must be desperate to know what had happened to him. He tried the intercom again. Nothing. He tried his cell phone. The battery was dead. He tried the door. The ward still held it from the outside, shutting him in. He spent an indeterminate amount of time examining the ward with his aura sight, trying to find a weak spot, but Janus was much better at placing wards than disarming other peoples. He tried attacking the ward with a lemicel, but the blade stopped dead a centimeter before it touched the door. The elven sigils glowed red, and the handle grew hot, as if a warning Janus not to try that again. He tried battering the door with one of his dumbbells, but it bounced off with no effect. Not even a scratch on the wood. Having exhausted his options with the door, Janus turned back to the window. After disarming his own protective wards, he undid the latch and slid the window open. A cold wind blew into the room, but Janus's body had a high tolerance for changes in temperature, so he was not overly concerned. He peered out over the ledge and into the empty gray fog. The city below was eerily quiet. He would have expected to hear skimmers moving past on the skyways below, or air traffic overhead, or the fans from the tower's ventilation system, but he heard nothing but the sound of the wind. Hello? he shouted. Can anyone hear me? Hello? The sound of his voice echoed back out of the mist but there was no other reply. Janus considered the wall of the tower below him. It was twelve stories down to the nearest skyway, about fifty meters, give or take. He'd climbed greater distances in his training, but that was on natural cliff faces, not the ice-coated side of a skyscraper in the dead of winter. And as much as Janus believed in being prepared, he did not keep mountaineering gear in his bedroom. He would have to correct that oversight when he got the chance. The odds didn't seem friendly, but he was through waiting around like a prisoner. If he'd lost a day in his journeys with Karenna, then Grandmother Mirai's restrictions on him were lifted. All he had to do was get back down to the ops center. Candace would help him find a wizard to dispel the wards on his room, and then they could start investigating this haunting properly. If he had to, he would call in Abigail Preston to get to the bottom of it. Probably at time-and-a-half holiday rates, and damn the cost. He changed into his full combat gear, and slid a lemesil into its scabbard across his back. After hunting around in his closet for a while, he found a set of hand claws that he had picked up during a trip to Yamato a few years ago. He hadn't been satisfied with them, and had decided against supplying them to his agents. Right now, though, anything that might give him a little more grip would be helpful. He laced up his boots, put on his gloves, slid the hand-claws over the gloves and strapped them on, then climbed out onto the window ledge. He was three and a half stories down before he decided that this had been a bad idea. The windows in this part of the tower were small and widely spaced. The facing stones were smooth and tightly fitted together, and there were no ornamental ledges or other decorative features that he could get a good grip on. The design was intentional, to keep potential enemies from scaling the walls to reach the barracks wing. He'd never thought he might need to do the reverse. He was just considering whether to try climbing back up when he heard something new over the sound of the wind. The distant whine of lift turbines. Hello? he shouted. Can you hear me? This is Agent Starson requesting assistance. He thought about this for a moment, then decided a more direct approach was probably better. Swallowing his pride, he shouted, Help! Please, help! The sound of the turbines increased in pitch, which meant that the pilot was ascending, accelerating, or both. The sound grew nearer as well, though Janus still couldn't see anything. He continued shouting for help until, at last, the headlights of the swoop appeared out of the fog. It was a lean, streamlined model, pilot dressed in hot pink racing leathers with white and silver accents. A fully enclosed helmet hid her face from view, but there was a quizzical tilt to her head as she looked up at him. Hello, Janus said, feeling greatly relieved. Thank you for coming. As you can see, I've gotten myself into a bit of trouble. If you could just carry me down to the skyway, I'd be very grateful. The pilot gave him one slow nod, then maneuvered her swoop up close to the side of the building. Janus carefully got his leg over the saddle, then let go of the wall and slid into the seat behind her. The swoop sank a little under his weight, and Janus wrapped his arms around the pilot's waist to steady himself. The pilot flashed him an OK sign, which he interpreted as a question he nodded. She rocked the pedals forward to accelerate, nosing the craft downward as she did so. The skyway came up out of the fog before them, and it looked as deserted as it had sounded from his bedroom window. The front entrance to Lothanasi headquarters appeared on his right. Thank you, he said to the pilot. Anywhere around here is fine. To Janus's surprise, though, the pilot did not pull over. Instead, the swoop shifted into the fast lane and accelerated, leaving the tower behind. Wait, stop, Janus said. That was where I needed to be. Go back. The swoop slowed down but did not stop. The pilot popped open her visor and looked back at him over her shoulder. Mismatched eyes of blue and amber peered out at him from an impish, elfin-looking face. Her mouth split into a grin. Sorry, Janus. Callie Linder said. I've got other orders tonight. You! Janus's gratitude at the rescue warred with his desire to throttle the little thief. He briefly considered thrusting a lemesil into the swoop's fuel cells. Given that he was currently sitting on top of them, though, he should probably consider a wiser course of action, such as throwing himself from the vehicle at highway speed. Me, Callie agreed cheerfully no hard feelings about those daggers, I hope. No hard feelings? Those were the Marshak's teeth, the best armor-piercing blades known to man. Priceless artifacts. Yep, Callie said. I've never seen a dagger punch through ten centimeters of armor plating before. If it makes a difference, it was for a good cause. Having you arrested would be a good cause, Janus growled. But since you've probably just saved my life— I'll leave that for another day. Mighty generous of you, sir, Callie said, sweetly. Where are you taking me? Valley South Borough. There's something I'm supposed to show you. Slapping the visor back down, Callie turned her attention to the road and accelerated once more. The fog grew so thick around them that Janus could no longer see the concrete below them. How Callie could fly in this, Janus had no idea. Even her luck seemed like it should have limits. As they flew, though, the fog gradually shifted from dark gray to white, until at last they broke through into the dazzling sunlight of a bright winter's day. Immediately they were surrounded by skimmers, swoops, and pedestrians. So many, in fact, that Janus couldn't believe that he hadn't heard them as they approached. He looked behind him for the fog bank, but it was nowhere in sight. Up ahead was one of the public squares that hung suspended between the city's towers a small, elevated park, surrounded on all sides by skyways. Trees in large planter boxes ringed a flagstone courtyard with a large white fountain in its center. The square around the fountain had been converted to an ice-skating rink, where thirty or forty people of all ages were... cavorting, Janus supposed was the best word for it. Whether slipping and stumbling about with the uneasy legs of the newly-initiated or zipping around in artful loops and turns, everyone Janus saw had abandoned any pretense of solemnity, caught up in the childlike joy of the moment. A very small part of Janus ached to see it. When was the last time he had let go of his discipline and reserve like that? When was the last time he'd been able to afford such frivolity? He could not remember. Callie took them in a slow loop around the square, hovering just above the regular flow of traffic. None of the other vehicles honked at her in passing, or even seemed to take any notice of her existence. "'Is this another vision?' Janus wondered aloud. As soon as he said it, he realized it must be so, for there was no other way they could have passed from foggy night to bright winter morning in bare minutes of travel. "'When is this?' "'Can't you tell?' Callie asked. "'It's the first of Yule, of course.' the long night's over. People are celebrating. But I guess you usually spend the day sleeping in. Janus grunted acknowledgement of this. His keen eyes caught a glimpse of a familiar figure out on the ice. Candace, with two children in tow, her niece and nephew, he assumed. She held one little hand in each of hers, leading them carefully around the rink, grinning as she urged them on in a steady stream of encouragements. The children fell down, of course. Repeatedly, one at a time, or both together. One time they tangled Candace's legs in their own, sending her sprawling on the ice along with them. Candace just laughed and carefully helped them to their feet, and then they were off again. Set me down here, please, Janus murmured. Callie did so without comment. Janus found himself drawn to the edge of the rink, staring fixedly at Candace as she approached. Grinning, puffing steam, Her cheeks flushed, her brown hair peeking out from under a knitted cap, her hazel eyes sparkling green and gold in the bright winter sun. She wore a wool riding coat, brilliant red trimmed with black, which stood out amid the ice like a ruby on white gold. Janus thought she had never looked more beautiful than she did in that moment, with all her cares and duties laid aside for the pure joy of living. Janus wanted to freeze the moment in his memory and carry it forever. This is what happiness looks like. I never knew. He raised a hand and smiled to her in greeting, but she turned the corner and passed by without ever seeing him. He should have expected as much. His hand fell back to the railing in a cold thump. She can't see you, Callie said, coming up to stand at his shoulder. These are just shades of the things that are. Janus cocked an eyebrow at the expression. Street rats like Callie weren't known for flowery language, but Corinna had said something very similar the night before. And what does that make you, spirit? The thief tipped him an ironic salute. For today, I'm your chauffeur. Maybe by the day's end you'll know me better, man. Janus snorted, but chose not to pursue the matter further. His eyes had been drawn back to Candace. She'd returned to the rink's entrance, and was helping the little ones off of the ice, where they were met by a slender, dark-haired young man with eyes much like his sister's. He escorted them over to a park bench, where some dark, steaming liquid was dispensed from an insulated container—hot chocolate, probably— The kids sat and sipped, looking content, and Candace joined them a moment later, where she set to pulling off their ice skates and replacing them with boots. Once they were properly shod, the adults cosseted them into a nearby skimmer. Janus went back to the swoop with Callie and gestured for her to follow, as Candace's brother pulled out into traffic. They followed the skimmer south, to an aging but comfortable-looking townhouse on the second skyway level. Candace's father came out to greet them. Janus recognized him from her last commendation ceremony, and the kids promptly latched themselves on to their grandpa, breathlessly recounting their adventure. The gray-haired man listened attentively and made encouraging noises in all the right places, all while gently but persistently ushering his grandchildren inside. Candace hung back by the skimmer, watching the scene with a strange, conflicted expression. Her brother noticed it, too. What's up, sis? Candace visibly shook herself, rubbed her eyes, blinked. Sorry, Glenn. Just a moment of angst. I'll get over it. Glenn followed her eyes to the front windows of the house, where Janus could see that the grandfather had taken the children to the kitchen, apparently to check with their mother and grandmother on the status of lunch. Dad seems to be doing better lately, Glenn said. It came out a little too casually. Forced positivity. Not well enough, Candace said. You didn't see him last Tuesday after that shopping trip. She crossed her arms and shook her head. He needs a new heart, period. Glenn did not gainsay this. Did you tell him your idea for that? What, taking the curse? Yeah, he shot it down. Says he doesn't want to adjust to a new body at his age. Not even for a chance at regeneration. She raised a hand and then dropped it, as if the movement could encompass a world of short-sighted stupidity. I was just thinking, are you going to be there for my kids? Are they even going to have the chance to know you? Well, if... Glenn started, then shut his mouth. Candace glanced over at him, a frown creasing her brow. What? It's nothing, Candy. Candace glowered at her brother. You're not going to distract me with that stupid nickname again. Come on, seriously, what were you going to say? Glenn looked off down the road, scuffing one foot against the sidewalk. I was about to stick my nose in your personal life. I'm sorry, it's none of my business. Candace put a hand on his shoulder. Like I told Janus last night, it's not intruding if you're invited. Go ahead. Glenn closed his eyes a moment, took a breath, then turned around to face her fully. Okay. Actually, it's about Janus. If you want your kids to know Dad, you might want to think about finding a different boyfriend. Janus isn't my boyfriend, Candace said, too quickly. He's your something, Glenn said. In five years, we haven't seen you once on Solstice Night. Then St. Mariah locks up Janus and you decide you can take the night off? Now it was Candace's turn to look away. He needs me, and I need to make sure he's safe. Because you love him, Glenn said. Candace closed her eyes. Janus stared at her, the breath caught in his throat. He expected her to deny it, to say the idea was absurd. The silence stretched, full of more meaning than words. I must be an idiot, Candace sighed. Who falls in love with a monk, honestly? Glenn put an arm around his sister, squeezed her shoulder. Why did you, if you don't mind my asking? Isn't he sort of... prickly? Candace chuffed a near-silent laugh. <laughs> That's one way of putting it. She mulled over the question for a long moment. The public only sees Janus with his game face on. That attitude is part of his armor, Inside HQ, he loosens up a little, shows us the man behind the badge. And what do you see in the man behind the badge? Glenn asked. Janus found himself leaning in close to hear her answer. Candace looked up, her eyes glistening brightly. For an instant, Janus could have sworn she was looking right at him, somehow aware of his presence, if only on a subconscious level. I see courage, she said. Loyalty. Honesty. Honesty honor. And also pain. This deep, terrifying loneliness. That's why he's such a workaholic, you know? I mean, yes, part of it's because our job is protecting people from things that want to eat your face, which is sort of a strong motivator. Glenn laughed at that. But part of it's because the job gives him purpose. Forward momentum. He keeps doing the job because then he doesn't have to wonder who he is when he's not doing the job. Janus thought of his father's words. Who is the serviceman when his service is ended? He pictured an old, ragged ghost, unable to continue his work but equally unable to be free of it. Not because he was damned by some divine judgment, or even because he was trapped by the power of the sword— but simply because there was not enough substance to him to break free. Everything that he was, everything that he understood as himself, had been part of the sacred charge that the sword represented. Lemesil was not a trap for lost souls. It had become a haven for souls too faint, too broken, or too obsessed to leave it. As Father had said, the chain was one he had forged himself. Janus wondered how much of a chain he had waiting for him. Seems like he would be a hard man to build a family with, Glenn said quietly. Maybe, Candace admitted, but I think he'd be good at it if he let himself try. He acts like a dad to the younger agents. Kind of a strict and grumpy dad, but there's no doubt he loves them. And he's very protective of children, which is part of why he gets so, um... Worked up about the Santa thing. Glenn snorted. <laughs> now I'm imagining what Solstice night would look like at the Starson house. A bunch of blonde moppets gathered around the chimney, armed with satchel charges and automatic weapons. Candace giggled. <laughs> Don't be ridiculous. Mom would make sure they all understand that satchel charges are an outside toy. Janus laughed with them both at that. As absurd as it was, the idea was curiously charming. I guess he suits you, Glenn sighed. Maybe that's the secret. Not finding someone who's perfect, just finding someone who's compatibly deranged. Candace punched him in the arm. Worked for you and Yanlin, obviously. Point, Glenn admitted. I hope he wises up soon and sees what he could have with you. You deserve to be with someone who appreciates you. Aw, you're sweet, Candace said. Then she gripped his coat and demanded in a harsh voice, Who are you and what have you done with my brother? Candace to HQ, we got a changeling here! They both laughed, tussling and squabbling until they both fell into a pile of plowed snow. Candace started trying to dump snow down Glenn's shirt. By the time they stood up again, the serious heart-to-heart was gone beyond recall, and Candace entered the house with a little of the same joy Janus had seen on her face earlier that morning. After a moment's hesitation, Janus followed them inside, where he took up a spot at the junction between the living and dining rooms. He watched as Candace and her brother rejoined her sister-in-law, their parents, and their children for a day of food, games, silliness, and celebration. Janus absorbed it all, transfixed, as this band of happy lunatics taught him the meaning of another word. This, he realized, was what family looked like. Darkness fell outside, the festivities wound down, and Glenn and his wife loaded the children into the skimmer for a visit with the other set of grandparents. Candace stayed with her mother and father for a time, talking quietly around the fire. The conversation turned to her father's health and the ongoing treatments it required. His heart was the most immediate concern, but apparently his lungs, kidneys, and digestive system were also having their share of troubles. In his eavesdropping, Janus learned more about the pervasive indignities of old age than he had ever wanted to know. He withdrew, feeling uncomfortable. Callie met him at the door, her eyes filled with a knowing sympathy. More dad stuff? Janus nodded. I remember when my father grew sick. Pancreatic cancer. He'd always been strong, brave, capable. In less than three months, he just... Faded. Withered. From field commander to invalid. Then gone. His vision blurred, and he wiped at his eyes two short, frustrated movements. For Candace, it's slower, more gradual. She's watching him fall apart in pieces. He gripped the railing of the front steps, felt the cold touch of the metal burning his skin. I don't know if that's better or worse. Callie came up behind him and squeezed his shoulder. Maybe neither. Maybe it's just different. Janus opened a hand to her, conceding the point. She's never told me about this. If I'd known... He hesitated. What would he have done, really? Last night he'd refused to even have dinner with Candace and her family. Because? What are you afraid of? Callie asked quietly. Janus looked up at her in alarm. What? Callie gestured at his face. It's in your eyes. That look you get when you know what you've got to do and you're not sure you can do it? She shrugged. You see it a lot growing up on the street. I suppose you would, Janus murmured. He looked back through the windows into the house, saw Candace holding her father and mother's hands, praying, maybe, or just sharing a moment of solidarity. I want to help her get through this, Janus said. He felt the stirring of determination in his own words, the ring of conviction in them. I want to be there for her. Is that part of your duty, as her commander? Callie asked. Janus clenched his jaw, hearing the ironic lilt in her voice. No, as her friend. And more than a friend? He still wasn't sure. What are you afraid of? He turned away from the house, back to Callie's swoop. Let's go, he said. Callie climbed on in front of him, raised the swoop into the air, and they were off. The fog rolled in around them again as they flew. Janus expected Callie to take him back up to Lothanasi headquarters, but instead she stopped at the entrance to a rooftop garden built atop one of the shorter towers in Valley Central. Maple trees stretched their bare branches skyward on either side of an arched, wrought-iron gate. The flagstone path curved past evergreen bushes of holly and juniper, disappearing into the mist. My time's almost up, Callie said. She pointed at the tower beneath their feet. Your next guide will join you when the clock strikes midnight. Janus dismounted from the swoop, looked at their surroundings, looked back at Callie. You've given me much to think about. Thank you. Callie tipped him a casual salute. We aim to please, or at least to serve. Janus smirked. And who is we, exactly? You never did tell me who you are. Callie's eyes widened. She put a hand to her chest. What, you don't think I'm Callie Linder? Callie Linder's talents are impressive, Janus allowed. Control over space and time isn't one of them so why wear that shape? The Kali, who is not Kali, shrugged. Think of it as a metaphor. Janus quirked an eyebrow. A metaphor for what? Trickery? Deception? Spontaneity? The spirit countered. Embracing the moment? Finding joy in the middle of darkness? That's the great thing about metaphors, Janus. They're adaptable. All I'll say is this. I've been with you in spirit before. Standing right at your elbow, and you've never known me. Janus felt cold. Often. The spirit smiled bleakly. Every year. Janus looked away. Tell me this, spirit. How much longer does Candace's father have? The chimes on the tower clock began to ring. The spirit rose into the air, looking down on him as the mists swirled around her. Don't ask me, she said. I'm a live-in-the-present sort of gal. But you can try asking your last guide about it, if you dare. What do you mean by that? Janus demanded. The spirit was far above him now, and fading rapidly from view. Farewell, Janus Starson, she cried. Remember, embrace the moments. They're the only ones you get. The hour bell tolled. Bong! and the mists swallowed the spirit completely. Everything around Janus grew abruptly silent, except for that one lonely sound. Bong. 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 The temperature plummeted. Ice formed on the branches of the maple trees as he watched. As the bell tolled for the twelfth time, the air became deathly still. Even the fog seemed frozen in place. And then Janus saw it, a tall, robed, and hooded figure, approaching him out of the night. And that was Stave 3. Come back next time for the conclusion of our story, as Janus faces the ghost of Solstice Future. Charles Dickens said, The most important thing in life is to stop saying, I wish... And start saying, I will. So, with that in mind, I will share with you my weekly writing report. I was looking forward to getting back to writing this week, and I did do a few hundred words on Operation Ibex. Mostly, though, I spent this week working on audio production. I lined up the next several episodes of my Patreon podcast and got the audio done for this week's chapter. I would have done more, but my neighbors were apparently doing all the laundry in the world this week, and there just wasn't much time when it was quiet enough to record. I did keep my chain going, though, so that's something. Here's hoping next week will be more productive. Lastly, I have an update on the Patreon campaign. After the change in fee structures was announced a couple of weeks ago, a lot of people wrote in to Patreon with feedback. Folks felt that the new fees were particularly unfair to small donors, and that Patreon made this change without talking to the people it affected. This week, Patreon announced that they are scrapping the proposed changes. There will still need to be some kind of adjustments in the months ahead to solve some of Patreon's ongoing structural challenges with funding, but they've promised to work through these problems in partnership with the creative community. Even though I wasn't all that unhappy with the proposed fee structure— I'm really glad that Patreon has made the decision to listen to their users like this. I honestly didn't expect that. Maybe I'm getting too cynical as I get older. In any case, keep an eye out for future changes, but for now, I'm going back to the old system of reward levels. Big, big thanks to all of my patrons, who stayed calm through all this confusion and didn't cancel their pledges on me. If you'd like to join more than a hundred other awesome people in funding this show— you can make a pledge of your own at patreon.com slash chris lester. And hey, if you're already a patron and you haven't given me your shipping address yet, this is the last week to get me that information so I can get you your Christmas surprise. You can do that through sending me a message at patreon.com slash chris lester, or send me an email at metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to Feedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, And my Mastodon handle is at authorchrislester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out.